is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb. We have an unbelievable show for you today. We got Bill Adler in the house, head of publicity for Def Jam Records. An amazing, amazing conversation coming your way. Anyway, before we get into all that, ancient tradition divides up the Bible into 54 portions, just about one for each week of the year. So each week, we take a look at one portion and identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it. So let's dive right into this week's portion called Lech Lecha. It's basically Genesis 12 through 17. And this right here is all about Abraham, the founding father of the Israelites, OG member of the chosen people. And since this is the first time the Bible ever introduces us to Abraham, and since I'm assuming you've all seen at least, you know, one superhero movie before, you'll know that this is where we learn Abraham's origin story. What was it that transformed him from mild-mannered Abraham into Abraham, father of the chosen people, biblical saint? Or at least that's what you think. But in fact, the weird thing is that we actually never get Abraham's origin story. Not here, not anywhere. The Hebrew Bible basically just drops us into the middle of Abraham's life where God tells Abraham to travel to the land of Canaan, what would later be known as the land of Israel, and promises that he'll grant it to Abraham's descendants. So basically, by the time we first meet Abraham, he's already chosen. But why? Why does God choose Abraham? Now, I have my suspicions as to an answer, but I'll save those for another episode, and instead I'll just point out that this question has really bothered commentators on the Hebrew Bible for thousands of years, and no one more so than the ancient rabbis. The rabbis, too, noticed that the Bible never explains why Abraham became God's chosen, and so what they do is speculate on what the reason could have been. And in so doing, they basically fill in this really fascinating, really detailed backstory for Abraham that teaches us a crucial lesson about how to live a full life. Now, if you had to come up with a reason why God would choose Abraham, what would you pick? You know, maybe something about how kind Abraham was, how well he treated others, or perhaps how pious he was, how he always said his prayers or something like that. Nope, 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 nope. Instead, for the rabbis... What made Abraham the chosen one is that he was a symbol of counterculture. He was a monotheist, a believer in only one God, in a society that universally believed in many gods. And rather than keeping his beliefs and commitments to himself, hoping to avoid ridicule, mockery, Abraham flaunted it. So, for example, one famous story the rabbis tell is about Abraham's father, who owned a shop that sold idols for worshiping, at least in the rabbinic telling. And one day, while he's away, he puts a young Abraham in charge of the shop. And eventually, some guy comes in and asks to buy an idol. And Abraham goes, "Uh, okay, but quick question, how old are you? And the guy goes, I'm 50 years old. And Abraham says, okay, so you're 50 years old, 
and you want to buy a trinket to worship that was just manufactured like what, last week? Are you insane? Right. So the rabbis have lots of humorous stories like this about that idol shop, but they had deadly serious stories as well, by the way. In one, the most powerful king in Mesopotamia finds out that Abraham is stirring up trouble against the powers that be, and the king has him condemned to death by fire. And as the rabbis tell it, it took a miracle for Abraham to escape. Now, bottom line, for the rabbis, what made Abraham special, the reason why God chose him, is not just because he discovered an important truth, monotheism, but rather it was because he was determined to share that truth with others, even if society mocked him for it. Abraham saw the establishment for what it was, lazy, decadent, corrupt, and he called it out. And sometimes he used humor and satire to do it. And other times he used, you know, fire and brimstone social critique. But either way, Abraham's greatness was in being willing to say no to the conventional wisdom and advancing a, you know, dissident, countercultural vision of what was good, right, and beautiful. And this is especially important to remember in light of what we all know that Abraham eventually became, right? Because after all, from our vantage point, all these thousands of years later, we probably don't instinctively think of Abraham as an underdog or a revolutionary or a counterculture figure. Instead, we think of him as a biblical saint, the founding father of three major world religions. He's the ultimate definition of mainstream, right? And there's a truth to the image of Abraham as establishment. He is, at least for many people around this country and around the world, you know, a central religious figure. But if we want to be true, to Abraham's cultural or spiritual legacy, if we want to live the values that got Abraham chosen in the first place, then we need to discover a willingness within ourselves to be countercultural, to be revolutionary, to say no sometimes, even when all of society just wants an easy yes, to follow a vision even when everyone else might mock us for it. Now, I know this might be hard to do. I mean, if you're used to thinking of yourself as mainstream, how do you tap into that revolutionary place inside of you? And if you're used to thinking of yourself as a member of the counterculture, on the other hand, so what happens when you suddenly find yourself in the mainstream, right, which was Abraham's journey? So to help us think through all of this, I brought in a guest who actually lived this entire journey who helped build a counterculture and then actually lived to see that counterculture become mainstream in a very short time. So without further ado, I'm beyond thrilled to welcome Bill Adler, a total renaissance man, but most famous for being the head of publicity for Def Jam Records from 1984 to 1990. He worked closely with massive artists from Run DMC to LL Cool J to the Beastie Boys to Slick Rick to Eric B and Rakim and many more. And by the way, if you want to get some of the references we're going to talk about here, maybe pause quickly and listen to Sucker MCs by Run DMC. Bill's a hip-hop historian, a collector, a teacher, and an all-around genius. And so without further ado, Bill, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I wish my mother was still alive to hear, you know, this extravagant introduction. I would not call myself a genius, but I would add one thing to what you said, and I think it's going to be relevant to our discussion today, which is that before I started working in hip-hop, I was a damned hippie. So there you go. That's how old I am. Now we're talking about it. So, you know, my, my grandfather was a rabbi on the Upper West Side in like the 60s, 
and he had this congregation full of Germans. And I think the bravest thing he ever did was on three separate occasions, he gave sermons like defending the hippies in front of these like old school, very stiff German Jews, you know? Good. Good for him and, and good for them, undoubtedly. There we go. So, Bill, set the stage for us. How did you get into rap in the first place? Like today, that would be an absurd question. Our best and most you know popular artists are all hip hop artists. But in the early 80s, no one would have made that assumption. So how did you come to this? It was just another day at work for me. You know, I, I was working at the time in Boston as the music critic at the Boston Herald. And there was this big, big hit by a group called the Sugar Hill Gang. And they had a song out called Rapper's Delight. And it was, you know, odd, but it was also kind of gigantic. You know, it's 15 minutes long. Yeah, it's like a long song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there was a three-minute edit. Nobody bothered with it. The kids didn't bother with it. And there'd been, you know, nothing really leading up to it. So it's 15 minutes long. Nobody is singing. And it's a huge popular hit. And so basically the kids forced it onto the one black radio station in the city, WILD. And, you know, so that's probably how I heard it. This would have been the fall of 1979. And I'd been oriented towards black music from the time I was very young. But, you know, as a critic for a daily newspaper, you know, even if my taste didn't run that way, there was news value in this. It was too popular to ignore. And so what is it about Def Jam, right? Because you're in that Def Jam at the top, 1984. So what's Def Jam doing then that no one else is doing? They're not apologizing for it. Actually, they're doing a couple things. Number one, they're not trying to cross over. And that was, you know, uh, an old promotional strategy on the black side of the business. It certainly goes back at least to Motown, which is uh, we're black. <laughs> you know, we don't want to do anything really about being black. We can't disguise it. And yet we're going to maybe soften the edges of what we do so that we can reach a wider and whiter audience. And when Russell and Rick, that's uh, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, by the time they start in 1984, there'd been five years of rap records. And um, I think that Russ and Rick were, in effect, kind of contemptuous of what all had been done in the name of rap up until that point, because there was at least uh, some little nod to the mainstream and to white folks. And Rick and Russ were, were folks who hung out in the clubs in New York City, and they were uh, in love with the sound of the music that they heard in the clubs and they heard in the parks. And what they wanted to do was to make records that reflected, you know, the reality of rap music live and to do so without apology and without crossing over. And that was really a turning point, I think. And I think there's this incredible energy. So, like, if you think of some of the early hits, I don't think Sucker MC was a, that wasn't an officially on a Def Jam record, but still it was, you know, Run and Russell Simmons and you guys, right. I feel like, and Rick Rubin are all in the mix. The amazing thing about Sucker MCs is that it kind of taps into this energy of, we actually don't need to appeal to people who aren't us. You know, we just want to do the coolest things that we respect. And I think there's this... That's right. Right, there's this sense. And it's funny, it, it relates so much to a lot of, I think, the Jewish experience in the United States, which is you have this establishment culture whose highest ambition is just to be like everybody else, be successful like everybody else and fit in. And I feel that now 
you know, there's a little more of a sense that, no, it's actually okay to be ourselves and what we have is pretty cool and awesome. And people should want to hang out with us because of that. Is that sort of the early Def Jam ethos? Yes, very much so. It really comes down to, I think, the experience of the music itself and of the culture itself and how good it made everybody feel and a belief that other folks from beyond the community would love it as well if they were able to get it in an undiluted way. There was nothing to be afraid of. It was wonderful. I mean, I would say this, you know, it's interesting to me to talk about the connection between Judaism and hip hop, but I will say the difference is that, well, maybe there, maybe there was no difference in, in, in effect. I was going to say that the thing about the Yids is that, you know, we never Hey, <laughs> we, we never uh, reached out to other folks. Not really. You know, we were content to be ourselves. And probably that's why, you know, we've attracted so much antipathy because there, there was no kind of missionary. There was no proselytizing ethos going on. Uh, you know, our idea was, you know, we've got what we love. Uh, we are who we are and we're going to live our lives. And, you know, it was slightly different with rap and hip hop, you know, just because the popular cultural context was very different. It was very, really, it was very racist at the time. You know, I grew up in the 60s at a time when, you know, the top 40 was very, very mixed. And somehow that fell apart in the 70s and it fell apart on the basis of race. And it started to come together again only with the ascent of rap. And, you know, rap essentially reintegrated the popular music mainstream, and it did it without compromise. But, you know, it's not like, you know, uh, you know our guys wanted to, to live in a ghetto. There was no ghetto mentality. There might have been at the very beginning, but it's a tribute to the power of the music and, you know, the overall power of the culture that it attracted folks from beyond the community very, very early on, certainly in downtown Manhattan by the early 80s. And Russell, among others, was, was paying attention to that, you know, so it starts in the outer boroughs, but, you know, all of a sudden, you know, tastemakers downtown in New York, including lots of folks who weren't black, uh, you know, arts-oriented folks, music-loving folks downtown, embraced it passionately. And, you know, Russell's idea was, you know, why must we keep it to ourselves? We're going to make it as widely available as possible at full strength and win. And he was right. I love this because this is my aspiration for sort of the next generation of Jewish thought, which is it really is that journey, which is to say, if we want to impact the mainstream, we don't have to do it as a hip hop community by sort of like pandering, I guess, to borrow from Chuck D by being Elvis. Right. We can do our own thing and people will love it because it's awesome. That's right. And so Abraham is basically the Hebrew Bible's kind of countercultural icon. Right. And in these ancient rabbinic stories about him where he's, you know, a monotheist in a world that's completely dominated by this pagan establishment. So he basically uses two tools to rebel against the conventional wisdom, humor and social critique. So like he's mocking the dominant pagan culture and satirizing it. And as the rabbis tell it, he's performing all these really funny and shocking antics. But at the same time, he's calling out all the corruption and the oppression carried out by the establishment. And you actually have both of these models in early 80s rap. So like 
at Def Jam, you have the Beastie Boys, who at least in the beginning, right, like License to Ill, right. are basically performing a satire. They're like these cocky, insane party animals. But then you also have Public Enemy, which really creates this harder sound and this tradition in hip hop of political and social consciousness. So does this characterization make sense to you? And can you talk about these two different models of counterculture, humor and social critique, and why each one is important? I'm just somebody who believes in what you might call evolution, you know, especially at a moment like now, any of us might despair at the thought that human beings evolve and which is a way of saying improve. And I mean, improving morally, you know, in my sunniest moments, I'm going to side with Martin Luther King who talked about, you know, the, the, uh, the arc of the moral universe. Yeah, the arc of the moral universe universe tends towards justice. And, you know, you said justice. I want to believe it tends towards love, and it tends towards community, and, it, and it, it tends towards peace. And even as I say these things, you know, it sounds like, you know, a lot of hippie spiel to me. But that kind of hopefulness... Hey, I'm a rabbi, man. You convinced me. <laughs> okay. You know, so, you know, that, that kind of hopefulness is key to hip-hop and, I think, to, to Judaism, you know? Agreed. So that's going to be what ties them together. There's, there's plenty of reason to be pessimistic. There's plenty of reason to be hateful these days. There's plenty of reasons to despair about human potential. But, you know, if uh, the culture at any given moment is going to be kind of hateful, square, backwards, etc., etc., backwards-looking the way that the Trump worldview is, then, you know, let a counterculture jump up that's forward-looking and hopeful-looking. And I feel like now there's a lot of focus on sort of the public enemy model, right, which is the social critique, which I think is exceedingly important. But I sometimes think that the Beastie Boys model gets lost, which is we're living in a deeply sort of unfunny moment, and humor becomes a really important thing in that kind of environment. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, sure, but, you know, don't neglect the humorous element in public enemy. Right, that's true. There's a reason that Flavor was in the band and remains in the band, and that's because he does provide humor, which is, you know, pretty deliberately uh, a counterbalance to Chuck. Because Chuck, let's say Chuck is, you know, the Malcolm X of rap. Okay, well, actually, he's not the Malcolm X of rap, because Malcolm X was somebody who had a sense of humor as well. Right. But, you know, let's just, you know, let's say he was a kind of a dour you know, dourer than he is, you know, you know, he needs a counterbalance to get over. You can be righteous all day long, I believe. But if you don't leaven your message with humor and lightness, sometimes I don't believe you're going to get over. So, you know, the way you described Abraham, that sounds a lot like Chuck to me, finally. Amazing. So eventually, you know, actually pretty quickly, rap goes from this cultural underdog, right? This total counterculture to the absolute center of the cultural mainstream. And you experienced this transition. I mean, usually, you know, this doesn't happen in an artist's lifetime. So what's that transition like? Does anything get lost in it? Is it important to keep that revolutionary spirit alive? And if so, how do you do it? Well, one thing, you know, we can talk about rap and hip hop kind of monolithically, but I think one of the things that was a great strength of it and a great engine of its success is that there was tremendous diversity within the culture. It was never any one thing, you know, and Russell made this very clear when we were early on rolling, you know, he, he says, we're not selling rap 
as a genre. You know, it's not disco where the artist is secondary. Each of these artists is unique in and of himself. And just because you buy a Run DMC record one week doesn't mean you don't want to buy an LL Cool J record the next week because you already bought a rap record. So, you know, that's an important thing to keep in mind. I like that. Take LL Cool J. That's a great example, right? So LL Cool J is this totally unique artist that you guys discover. And I mean, ladies love Cool J. You know, like, I mean, this is a total ladies man, a unique figure. And when you guys start out, he's like some kid sending tapes. And I think, right, it's like Ad-Rock who discovers him, right? It's like one of the Beastie Boys who discovers him by accident. And all of a sudden you kind of wait. I don't even know if it was a decade. It was probably shorter than that. And all of a sudden LL Cool J, I mean, now is like, you know, the absolute definition of a mainstream performer. Sure. So what is it like to kind of go from underdog to mainstream so quickly? And does anything get lost in that transition? And how do you keep that original creativity going? It's very, very gratifying to see that kind of progress, you know, racial progress, and I would say cultural progress in America. And, you know, it's particularly gratifying because, as I said, you know, the moment when rap emerged, what was going on in popular music, what was going on, let's say, at MTV, which, you know, opened its doors, I think, in 1980 or 81, was so square It was really backwards. And it was also, you know, and and this isn't a side note, it was also exclusively white. So-called rock music was made by white people, period. And so the idea that, you know, rap would come along and, and reintegrate pop was a great thing in and of itself, but also it's a great thing because, you know, the music is great. And it, it is completely competitive with, with, with whatever kind of music you love made by people of any race. And, you know, so I'm happy to see it. But then again, look, you know, I am now 68 years old. And I didn't really start listening, you know, to rock and roll obsessively until the Beatles hit early in 1964. But, you know, it, it predates me, you know, the super positive cultural effect of black music on America cannot be overstated. And what happened was essentially the civil rights movement began under another name in the mid fifties, 10 years really before the civil rights act. And that was the original outburst of rock and roll because it always included artists of color in a way that, you know, hadn't happened before. So Elvis, sure. Eddie Cochran, yes, on and on. But also Little Richard. Right, Chuck Berry. Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, huge hit makers right away. And somehow white teenagers' heads didn't explode in horror. You know, on the contrary, these artists of color were embraced by everybody. And so that's just the way it went. Black music was built into the soundtrack of my life. And the astonishing thing really isn't that rap managed to battle back or to reverse a decade's worth of uh, uh, this kind of defensive whiteness, but that there'd ever been a time when there'd been that kind of white reaction. I mean, it's funny because when you put it that way, you know, sort of one of the, the really striking things about the way that Jewish thinkers have thought about repentance, for example, is that it's not just the way to change your future. It actually changes your past. And 
I sort of think of, you know, hip hop and rap in America in that same sense as well, because what hip hop comes along and does is it actually doesn't just change the future of music. It changes the past. Right. So, you know, if you skip along from groups like Run DMC, you know, L Cool J, Slick Rick, and you get along to groups like De La Soul or A Tribe Called Quest. I mean, these are groups that are sampling jazz music from back in the day. And now if you look at some of the most popular records around, I mean, they're all sampling jazz. They're like they're all using or or they're actually playing with contemporary jazz performers like Kendrick Lamar is performing with Kamasi Washington. It's unbelievable. Right. Culture is kind of invariably a mishmash. And also it's necessarily built on everything that precedes it. And, you know, there are lots of folks who have said, you know, a variation on this, which is creativity is the ability to disguise your sources. And the thing about hip hop, for what it's worth, is that, you know, these guys uh, and women (laughs) never, uh, never attempted to disguise their sources. The DNA of hip hop has been pretty evident from the very beginning And it's always been very, very broad. It's always crossed genres and it's crossed decades. And there was never any kind of concern about, you know, what you might call the racial purity of the the roots of the music. Think of Run DMC making a new version of Aerosmith's song, Walk This Way. Right, Walk This Way. You know, there might actually have been people in 1986, including the guys in Aerosmith, you know, who kind of scratched their head and saying, oh, what are these black musicians doing recording a rock song? But that beat, the beat to walk this way, was already ensconced in hip hop's DNA. Boom, da, ba boom, boom, da, doom, boom, da. But you, you know, that do 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 And yeah, that great riff. You know, that was enough, uh, you know, for these rappers. They said, okay, we're going to take it. And there'd been countless, I mean, it was, it was a go to beat for rap and live performance. And Run DMC wanted to take that beat and write a new song over it, which is really sort of the conventional hip hop way. And Rick Rubin says, you know what, let's remake the song itself. And that was really a radical idea because Run and D, to give you an idea how specific you know, their thinking was about the music, they'd never heard of Aerosmith before. They thought the name of the band was Toys in the Attic. And they'd certainly never listened to (laughs) the vocals before. So when the time came to record the song, Run and D really had a hard time trying to figure out what the hell Steven Tyler was singing about. What does he mean? What's he saying? You know, it struck DMC, and this isn't, you know, the, the most wonderful thing he ever said, but he was being truthfully said, it struck him as hillbilly gibberish, right? (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, as far as Aerosmith were concerned, you know, actually they took heat. They took heat at the time from, you know, rock world folks. And they said, rock, we don't have anything to do with rock. We're an R&B band, which is a way of saying they were rooted in, back, in black culture. And that's the way culture works, that kind of mishmash again. So, you know, if I could then ask just, you know, one last sure. question along those lines. Right. So today I feel like the most influential religious figure in the world, maybe after the Pope and certainly in America, it's probably Kanye, right? With his Sunday, with his Sunday sermon, right? Kanye West and biblical stories and wisdom are also really influential and probably the two greatest rappers alive, Kendrick Lamar, Chance the Rapper. And you can hear biblical themes in so much of contemporary hip hop. So we don't have to get into the details of the music, but just 
you know, like at a high level, is there something about rap or hip hop as a genre, maybe something epic about it that lends itself to this kind of, you know, big picture narrative influence? Um, no, I would say that music aside, you know, uh, uh, rappers are storytellers and they love a good story no matter what the source and, you know, the Bible is comprised of good stories. Now, you know, obviously there's a, an explicit or at least implicit moral imperative in Bible stories. But I don't know if that's the chief reason that people continue to quote from the Bible and continue to live by the Bible. I think that the fact that it's these punchlines, these moral imperatives, are embedded in longer narratives, seductive narratives, is a big, big part of why people continue to read the Bible and, and quote the Bible. And these rappers are not immune to the appeal of a, a great story, no matter what is the moral imperative. Because listen, you know, I'd love to, to be able to paint rap as this culture of moral paragons, but that's not true. But it's not, and neither is the Bible for that matter. The Bible doesn't, you know, glamorize its, its heroes or completely disparage its villains either, right? There's a lot of moral gray. Uh, you'll find a lot of moral gray. No, no, I think this is exactly right, meaning it's that appeal of the big story. Yep. Amazing. Bill, thank you so much for being with us. I think this is really, really special. I'm, uh, and I, I, I'm pretty confident in saying that uh, this kind of conversation does not exist out there right now, so I'm pretty excited. Well, you know, I want to believe that you'll see more of these kind of conversations because the moral climate today is in such chaos and because it seems like there's really a stark battle going on right now between, you know, hate and ignorance and a kind of a, a, a more peaceful, loving point of view. That's, exactly. I mean, what the hell? You have the devil versus, you know, Abraham in a presidential election right now. You know, I, I do think that Trump's evil has forced people to think in more moral terms. People are turning away from him in revulsion because of his lack of morals right now. So, yeah, this is a good time to talk about all this stuff. I love it. Thank you, Bill. This is really wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you. Each of us comes from a tradition from values that shaped us, from experiences that made us who we are. And in my case, it's the Hebrew biblical tradition, but for you, it might be something else entirely. But whatever it is, we should want to bring those unique values to the world because all of society will be richer for it, right? Don't just try to be another Elvis or another version of what everyone else already likes. Those things have been done before. If we wanna both honor our past and change our future, the best way to do it is to be like Abraham bring our values unapologetically into the public square and trust that in the end, we can inspire a revolution by being true to ourselves. This has been Ari Lam, making a good faith effort. See you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you.
The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop. <laughs>